Our scripture reading tonight is from the book of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. The context is that the temple has just been completed by Solomon, and this is the dedication ceremony. There will be many, many, many sacrifices offered, but Solomon is standing before the people, and he prays to God, leads the whole congregation in congregational prayer. And our text this evening is part of that prayer of Solomon, verses 18 through 21. But we'll read from the beginning, Second Chronicles chapter 6. And said, Solomon, the Lord hath said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. But I have built an house of habitation for thee, and a place for thy dwelling forever. And the king turned his face and blessed the whole congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who hath with his hands fulfilled that which he spake with his mouth to to my father David, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build an house in, that my name might be there. Neither chose I any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, For as much as it was in thine heart to build a house for my name, thou didst well, in that it was in thine heart. Notwithstanding, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son, which shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build the house for my name. The Lord therefore hath performed his word that he hath spoken, for I am risen up in the room of David, my father and am set on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And in it have I put the ark, wherein is the covenant of the Lord, that he made with the children of Israel. And he stood before the altar of the Lord, in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands. For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long, and five cubits broad, and three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court. And upon it he stood, and kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands toward heaven, and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in the heaven nor in the earth, which keepest covenant and showest mercy unto thy servants that walk before thee with all their hearts. Thou which hast kept with thy servant David my father that which thou hast promised him, and spakest with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thy hand as it is this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father that which thou hast promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in in my sight to sit upon the throne of Israel. Yet so that thy children take heed to, to their way, to walk in my law as thou hast walked before me. Now then, O Lord God of Israel, let thy word be verified, which thou hast spoken unto thy servant David. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Have respect, therefore, to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee, that thine eyes may be open upon this house day and night, upon the place whereof thou hast said that thou wouldest put thy name there, to hearken unto the prayer which thy servant prayeth toward this place. Hearken, therefore, unto the supplications of thy servant and of thy people Israel, which they shall make toward this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place, even from heaven, and when thou hearest, forgive. If a man sin against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to make him swear, and the oath come before thine altar in this house, then hear thou from heaven, and do, and judge thy servants by requiting the wicked, by recompensing his way upon his own head, and by justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. And if thy people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall return and confess thy name, and pray and make supplication before thee in this house, then hear thou from the heavens, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them again unto the land which thou gavest to them and to their fathers. When the heaven is shut up, and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, 
Yet if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou dost afflict them, then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel when thou hast taught them the good way wherein they should walk and send rain upon thy land which thou hast given unto thy people for an inheritance. If there be dearth in the land, if there be pestilence, if there be blasting or mildew, locusts or caterpillars, if their enemies besiege them in the cities of their land, whatsoever sore or whatsoever sickness there be, then what prayer or what supplication soever shall be made of any man or of all thy people Israel, when every one shall know his own sore and his own grief, and shall spread forth his hands in this house, then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and render unto every man according unto all his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou only knowest the hearts of the children of men, that they may fear thee to walk in thy ways, so long as they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. Moreover, concerning the stranger, which is not of thy people Israel, but is come from a far country for thy great namesake, and thy mighty hand, and thy stretched out arm, If they come and pray in this house, then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name, and fear thee, as doth thy people Israel, and may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. If thy people go out to war against their enemies by the way that thou shalt send them, and they pray unto thee toward this city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name, then hear thou from the heavens their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against thee, for there is no man which sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them over before their enemies, and they carry them away captives unto a land far off or near. Yet if they bethink themselves in the land whither they are, whither, whither they are carried captive, and turn and pray unto thee in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done amiss, and have done and have dealt wickedly. If they return to thee with all their heart, and with all their soul, in the land of their captivity, whither they have carried them captives, and pray toward their land which thou gavest unto their fathers, and toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house which I have built for thy name, then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. Now, my God, let, I beseech thee, thine eyes be open, and let thine ears be attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let thy saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Remember the mercies of David, thy servant. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The text I call our attention to tonight is verses 18 through 21. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Have respect, therefore, to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee. That thine eyes may be open upon this house day and night, upon the place whereof thou hast said, that thou wouldest put thy name there, to hearken unto the prayer which thy servant prayeth toward this place. Hearken therefore unto the supplications of thy servant, and of thy people Israel, which they shall make toward this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place, even from heaven, and when thou hearest, forgive. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, our purpose every time we gather together in this building for worship is to meet with God. Now in many ways, what we do here starts to feel rather ordinary to us. We do it every Sunday. There's a rhythm and a routine, even a repetitiveness to it all. The songs we sing become very, very familiar. The order of worship 
is consistently the same. Becomes as regular as eating and drinking. As getting dressed in the morning. Even as doing our daily chores. Because of that regularity, there's a danger that we forget what is actually happening in this meeting. Not that there's anything so special about the rhythms and routines of the meeting itself. But who are we meeting? Who are we meeting in this place? The answer is the very being who created the stars. The answer is the Lord of heaven and earth. The God of whom the angels cease not to cry out day in and day out. Holy Holy, holy, Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. Do you know, people of God, what an awesome, awesome privilege is yours every time you come into this place on the Lord's day for worship? If you do, That's because you have been deeply impressed by the immeasurable greatness of this God whom we worship. King Solomon knew whom he was dealing with. That's why he says what he says in our text, which is quite a remarkable thing for this man to say on this occasion. Here he has just finished building one of the most magnificent structures ever to be built by human hands. This is the dedication ceremony for the temple of God that Solomon built. And yet Solomon says, almost like it's a side note in all of the other things that he says, that it's not good enough. It's not glorious enough. It's not big enough. And there's nothing that could ever be big enough. For God is too great to dwell in temples. God is too great to dwell even in the heavens or the heaven of heavens which cannot contain Him. Beloved people of God, we must know whom we are dealing with when we come into this place for worship. For only then will we understand what an enormous privilege we have that this God chooses to come meet with us, to live with us as our God. I call our attention to this text this evening. The theme is the God too great for temples. First, knowing Him, His greatness, His glory. Secondly, approaching Him in light of this greatness and glory of God. How then ought we to approach Him? Solomon addresses that also in the text. And then finally, we'll conclude by noting that we live with this God. What an amazing gift that is to live with this God. The God too great for temples. King Solomon was standing on a platform made out of brass. All around him, the eyes of thousands of people were quietly looking up to him. Behind him stood the newly constructed temple of the Lord, shining brightly in the sun. The whole building was covered from top to bottom in gold, and the scent of cedar was in the air, since the temple was constructed from the cedar's of Lebanon. Through the open doors, the gathered people could see the golden candlesticks that lined one side of the inner sanctuary and on the other side, the tables of showbread. And at the very back, the richly decorated veil behind which was the Ark of the Covenant. The priests and the Levites were standing there in the temple court, standing 
at attention, ready to offer sacrifices on the newly minted altar of of burnt offering. This grand moment was seven years in the making. The whole nation had been a flurry of activity leading up to this moment, mining stones from the quarry, cutting down the cedars of Lebanon to size and fashioning them into boards, and then quietly and reverently putting it all together to construct the temple building, the house of God. But the planning for this went back even further than the seven years it took to build the temple, as David also spent much of his reign gathering materials, purchasing the building site from Arona, the Jebusite, and getting everything ready. As Solomon mentions in verse 7, it was in the heart of his father David to build a house for the name of the Lord his God. The temple that was built, therefore, in light of all of this planning and all of this work and all of this expense was strikingly beautiful. There's an incident from Old Testament history that helps us understand just how beautiful this temple of Solomon was. If you remember how the history proceeds from this moment, Solomon reigns for some time, but then after Solomon, the temple begins to deteriorate slowly over time. And that's because the kings that come after Solomon, beginning with Rehoboam, really neglect the temple. And in his judgment and chastisement, God sometimes sends armies to invade Jerusalem who come and and they strip away some of the gold and precious stones so that by the days of Jeremiah, that is just before Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes them all into captivity, the temple has already lost much of its former glory. And then the city is sacked by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and the rest of the gold is stripped away and all of the items are taken out of the temple and go into Nebuchadnezzar's treasury and the the remaining structure is burned to the ground. But if you remember, 70 years after that awful day of the sack of Jerusalem, a small remnant returns by the decree of Cyrus and they begin to rebuild the temple. And when the new temple is beginning to take shape, they have a dedication ceremony. And some of the old men are there. And seeing that new temple, they begin to weep and cry. This is found in Ezra 3, if you want to look it up. They begin to cry, and it's because they remember the first temple. They remember the glory and the majesty of Solomon's temple. And it it doesn't compare to this new temple that they're building. And that's even after the temple had deteriorated for years and years and ages and ages. It was a glorious building. Now imagine what that temple must have looked like on the day of dedication as Solomon was standing here on this bronze platform before thousands of onlooking Israelites. All of the considerable wealth of his kingdom, and in Solomon's day, silver was counted as nothing. There was so much wealth. All of that considerable wealth was poured into the construction of this temple. There was no building like this building anywhere else in the world at this time. It was a temple deliberately designed and built to show that the person who dwells in this place possesses a glory and a majesty that is unlike any other glory and majesty. This house is the house of the Most High God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. That was the temple that Solomon built. That was the occasion. That this temple was so glorious then, makes it stand out when Solomon stands up before the people, raises his hands to heaven in prayer, and makes this confession in verse 18 of our text. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built.
This confession of Solomon is clearly not the same kind of statement that would have been made by a pagan ruler, one of Solomon's contemporaries. A pagan ruler would say something like this on an occasion like this. He would say to his God, look at this great temple that I have built for you, O God. Now in return, now in return, I expect you to stick with me. I expect you to fight my battles when I go to war. I expect you to make a great king. I expect you to make me prosperous. I am making you great by building this magnificent structure, pouring all of this expense into it. Now you make me great by blessing my kingdom and making me prosperous. That's how the pagan religions of that day functioned. Beloved, that's really how all man-made religions function. I give the God something that He values. Then the God gives me something in return that I value. That's every religion under the sun, beloved. That's the way it goes also when errors and heresies come in to corrupt the Christian gospel. I do something good for God. I believe in Him. I choose Him. I do some good works for Him. I fulfill some conditions for Him. Then God in return does something good for me. He gives me some health or some wealth in the crasser forms of this heresy. Or He gives me some grace. He brings me to heaven. It's quid pro quo, this for that. But Solomon would say, if you think that way, you have no idea. You have no idea just how great, just how enormously big this God really is. This temple that I have built, Solomon says, this glorious temple covered from head to toe in gold is nothing. Nothing. It would be so incredibly beneath the great God of heaven actually to come down and live in this building that I have built. And there's not enough gold in the world. There are not enough cedars of Lebanon in the world to make it any otherwise. Will God indeed come to dwell among men on the earth? Then he scales it up even more. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. Think about that, beloved. When you look up at night, you see this great expanse of the heavens. An expanse so huge that it's big enough to hold stars and galaxies. And each of those galaxies in its own right is so huge that it's filled with billions and billions of stars. And if you were to try to cross the space reflected in that galaxy, you would die of old age before you would ever get from one end to the other. And to us, they all look like pinpricks of light in this great blue expanse. That heaven is too small. It's not big enough. It's not great enough. It's not glorious enough. It cannot contain this God. Even if you were to go past this earthly heaven that we see when we look up at night and proceed into that spiritual heavenly realm where the angels dwell, And even if you should go up to the very top, uppermost tier of that heavenly realm where the great and glorious throne sits, even that place is not big enough. Even that place is not glorious enough or holy enough for the God whom Solomon worships to dwell there. And will God come to live in this little house that I have built on the earth? And is God now beholden to me, Solomon, a man, because I have built him this temple? Solomon is much too well aware of the God with whom he is dealing to come to such a small-minded conclusion 
as that. The pagan kings whose minds revolve around their own interests don't think nearly big enough when it comes to God. They think God is like themselves. And so they deal with Him as if He's like themselves, interested in shiny things, interested in mere power. But Solomon knows, and the child of God knows, the God he worships is too great for temples. What is it that makes God too great for temples? On the one hand, this follows from who God is as the Creator and the position that that puts Him in in relationship to His creation. God is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And God is not the Creator of the heavens and the earth in the way that some of you might be creators or builders. When you build a house, if that's your occupation, you take pre-existing materials, some boards, some nails, and you put it all together in order to construct perhaps a marvelous edifice. Nevertheless, your act of creation in that respect is always as a creature yourself. And it is an act that takes place within the confines of the creation. But when God created the world, He called into being the things that were not as though they were. Through the power of His Word, He called the whole creation into being out of nothing. Rather than, from working within the, rather than working from within the boundaries of the creation as we do, God is the one who set those boundaries. Rather than working with the material of the creation as we do, God is the being who gave existence to that material. And that puts Him in a relationship of total exaltation above His creation. And that gives us a clue as to why God cannot dwell in temples that are made with human hands. As the creator of this world, He transcends this world. He rises above this world. As the God who set the boundaries, He also exists outside of those boundaries. Children might get some idea of what I'm talking about here. If you think about the houses that you've built out of Legos, or Lincoln Logs, or something like that. Imagine if your little Lego men were to come alive and were to build a house, a Lego house, and then were to proposition you and say, you ought to come down and live in this house that we have built. We built it for you. I imagine you'd have a lot of reasons as to why that would be impossible. One of them would simply be, you're too big. You can't fit in a house that's built by Lego men out of Legos. But even if you could fit into it, perhaps the house is so big, there's so many thousands and thousands of Lego pieces into this house that a human being can fit inside of it, but still it wouldn't be fit. It wouldn't be proper for you to live there because the material isn't fitting for the kind of person that you are, which is a human being. You can't live in a house built out of Legos. Now take that little illustration and magnify it by a million times, a hundred million times, and you begin to understand the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain this God How much less a temple made with human hands. The the Creator cannot come to live in a building constructed by His creatures. On the other hand, God is too great to dwell in temples because of His holiness. God is holy. Even if you were to go up into that heaven of heavens where the angels dwell, what will you find there? What will you hear? You'll find angels crying out day in and day out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. 
And those angels are compelled to cry that out day in and day out, even though they themselves have only seen a little bit of God. For even the place where they dwell is not big enough or glorious enough to contain Him. Now for all the beauty of Solomon's temple, for all the gold and precious jewels that went into it, and all the care and reverence that it required to construct that building, this temple was built by sinful human hands. That it was plunked right down in the middle of a city of sinners. Sinners. All of whom will soon forget about the excitement and the glamour of this moment of the dedication ceremony. And will move on from the temple of God that they have built to go on and build shrines to all kinds of idol gods. And temples for them so that the streets of Jerusalem, though God's temple is at the top, nevertheless are filled with a pantheon of pagan gods. And Solomon himself, the king who's standing before them making this prayer, is going to be the primary culprit of all of this. Building these shrines and temples to the idol gods to please his many wives. And the only thing that stands between these idolatrous Sinful people and this holy God is the blood of animals sacrificed on this altar? Will God indeed dwell among men on the earth? Will God be able to tolerate these sinful hands coming again and again, polluting His doorstep? This God, this great and holy God, do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know who you're dealing with, beloved? Do you know who you come to worship on the Lord's Day, week after week, Sunday after Sunday? Will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Will God in very deed dwell with you? With you? That's our desire. That's what we ask. That's what Solomon asks in this prayer. So how do we approach Him? How do we come to meet this glorious, holy, transcendent God who fills the whole earth with His glory? The first thing to say as we approach this God is that we must only ever approach Him as He is. We must only ever approach Him as He is. There's always a temptation, beloved, to try and bring God down to our level, isn't there? Israel will go on to fall to this temptation again and again and again. They will look at the sacrifices they bring to this temple as bargaining chips to gain God's favor, perhaps, or to get Him off their backs if they have done wrong. They will use this temple system as a screen to project that they are righteous and that they are God's people, while in fact... Ignoring what God actually requires of them and walking far from Him. They will reject and even kill the prophets of God while, even, while at the same time claiming that they are God's people and that God approves of them. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these, they will say, even as they are living in adultery. Even as they are oppressing the strangers and the fatherless. Even as they are walking after other gods. Look up Jeremiah 7. Verse 4, and you'll see what I mean. And this is to bring God down to our human level. This is to assume that God sees sin the same way that we do, which is to ignore it or to overlook it or to minimize it. Instead of receiving God as the holy and exalted God that He is, this is to make a God in our own image and after our own likeness. That's what the sinful human heart does or tries to do. 
That's why there are so many idols in this world, beloved. That's why Israel set up those golden calves eventually, turning away from the temple altogether and worshipped those golden calves as if they were worshipping Jehovah. And this is a very real danger to us and our children also. It's a danger that we fall into every time we imagine that simply by showing up in church on Sunday that that will make up for our bad behavior on Monday through Saturday. It's a danger that we fall into every time we imagine that God will accept us simply because of who our parents are. Or because of the the Christian school that we went to. Or because I was baptized in such and such a church. It's a danger we fall into whenever we reject the word of warning and the preaching that calls us out for our sin. And instead of hearing that word of warning, we instead rationalize our sinful behavior and our evil ways of thinking. Israel chanted, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Today we might chant something like this, well, I'm a Reformed Christian. And I go to a Reformed church and I subscribe to the creeds. And yet we use that as a screen to cover up the fact that for all our knowledge and all of our, for all of our creed subscription and for all of the fact that we were baptized in such and such a church and had such and such parents that we were living like the world. This bringing God down to our level. This trying to cram God into the tiny little temple that we have built with our own human hands. Is trying to make him live according to our rules and our expectations. And we must never do that. Rather, we must let God be God. Let God be God. That's what's so marvelous about the way Solomon approaches God in this prayer. He does not foolishly try to cram God into that temple that he has just built. However grand and glorious that temple may appear to human eyes. He recognizes who God is and approaches Him as such. I know, O God, that You are a God who dwells high in the heavens and above the very heaven of heavens. And even those heaven of heavens cannot contain Thee. But, O Lord, from Your place of exaltation, let Your eye be on this place. This little house that I have built day in and day out. As the great and glorious God that you are, nevertheless have respect to us. Condescend to us. Come to meet us where we are. Beloved, isn't that what we want? We don't want a God who fits neatly into our box. A God like that can't help you. A God like that is no different than The people who try to remake him in their own image. A God like that is really nothing more than a puppet of human hands and human minds, which are sinful and corrupt. We don't want a God like that. We want the God who's so great that even the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. We want the God who's absolutely sovereign. We want the God who's absolutely holy, absolutely free. Absolutely defiant of all human wisdom and human expectations. That's the God we want. Approach Him as such, beloved. Let God be God when He speaks to you from His Word. And hear Him as He is. Let God be God when you come to His house on the Lord's day. And when you gather at His feet in worship. Let God be God. The second thing to say as we approach this God is that we must only ever approach Him on the basis of His own Word. Did you catch that? It might seem as if Solomon has relinquished his entire claim that this temple he has just built is God's house. How does Solomon have the right to say that this building is God's house If he has also just said that God is too great to dwell in any house that is built by human hands. Doesn't that just make this a very elaborate but very empty building? Why should Israel go here? 
Why should they pray in the direction of this temple? Why should they offer sacrifices here? What's the point then if God is too great for temples? The answer is because God said that he would treat this building as his own house. God said that he would put his name there. Solomon asks God to have respect to this building and to keep his eye open upon it because, verse 20, This is the place whereof thou hast said that thou wouldest put thy name here to hearken unto the prayer which thy servant prayeth toward this place. God said he would. And Solomon believes what God says and approaches God through his word which he receives as a faithful word. That's instructive to us as we approach God in worship, beloved. One of the trends in our modern day is that everything has to be authentic. Everything has to be authentic. And authentic means real. Real as opposed to things that are cheap and fake and pretend. And this trend can come into people's attitudes about worship as well. And people will say, I want an authentic worship experience. And it has to do with how a person feels in the worship service. I want to feel a certain way. I want, I want the worship service to make me feel a certain way about God and my relationship to Him so that it's authentic, it's real, it's, it's substantial. And that's fine as far as it goes. Unless authentic is just a byword for a certain kind of feeling. And however you can make that feeling happen, then that's the authentic thing. That's the real thing. What we must understand is that there's nothing more authentic and there's nothing more real, beloved, than the word that comes out of God's mouth. Reality itself, solid, concrete reality around us exists only because God spoke in the beginning. So when God says that He is our God and that we are His people, when God says that He justifies us, When God says that He forgives us, that He loves us, that's a powerful thing. It's a powerful word to everyone who believes it. And it has real, concrete, spiritual effects in the lives of the believers. Which means the question is not about how authentic is the experience of the worship service. The question is, Do you believe what God is telling you in His Word? Then, and only then, may you approach Him. We must approach Him on the basis of what He says through His Word. But the final and perhaps the most important thing to say about our approach to this God, and this comes out powerfully, in Solomon's prayer, is that we must approach God through His mercy. That's what makes this picture of Solomon standing on this bronze platform so striking and so wonderful, beloved. Here is this great king with a golden crown on his head, a robe of purple on his shoulders, who's built this great temple, this monumental human achievement, we might say, in today's language. But he's not standing here to twist God's arm. He's not saying, look at the great thing that I have done. How great a king am I? Now God, you must give me something in return. What's he doing? He's asking God for mercy. You don't have to do anything for me, Lord. I'm fully aware that this temple is nothing in comparison to your greatness. But, O Lord, have respect unto us anyway. Look down on us and put your name on us as you said you would. And hear our prayers. And also this. Hear our prayers. And also this. When you hear. Forgive. 
house. Because any prayer that is directed toward this house will be directed there by sinful people. And it would be in God's rights as the holy majestic God to ignore every one of those prayers and to turn his face away firmly in rejection. But forgive, Lord, in thy mercy. Forgive. What that means for us, beloved, is that the only way to approach God is through Christ. Through Christ alone. That's what all those sacrifices that are going to be offered on the altar in Solomon's temple are going to point to. Those sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, that was meaningless in and of itself. But it was prophetic and typical of a great sacrifice that was coming. The great sacrifice that God himself will make personally when he comes down to dwell among men on the earth. Remember that, beloved, when you enter into God's house on the Lord's day. We come to meet with God. But the God that we are coming to meet is the God who has first come down to meet with us through Emmanuel, the Son of God in flesh, who reveals to us the grace and truth of the covenant God. That's the Lord whom we meet in worship. That's why surprisingly and wonderfully, we can actually answer yes to that question that Solomon asks in verse 18. You think that's a rhetorical question. And it seems like the answer is no. But the answer is actually yes. Will God indeed come to dwell among men on the earth? Yes. He will. He does. He has. That's great and glorious, transcendent God through an act of mercy and grace, unspeakable has come to live with us, to walk among us. Don't forget, beloved, that this is what the temple was designed to communicate in a wonderful way. It was designed to communicate that God is with us. It's a house, isn't it? It's a house. There's a table in that house with bread on it. There's a candle stick in that house to cast light in the darkness. It's a house. And what's a house? It's a place where a family dwells. Where children come to sit at the feet of their father. And to enjoy each other's company. That's what the Lord wants us to think when we gather here for worship on the Lord's day. If you think sometimes our worship is so simple, it's so ordinary, there's no frills, there's no elaborate ceremonies, it's just some old songs, it's just an old order of worship, the same old routine, same thing I've been doing since, since I was a child. What's so special about this? But what we must understand, beloved, is that it's exactly that ordinariness that makes it so special when you understand who we are meeting with in this place. God comes to live with you. God comes to dwell with you. God comes to eat at the table with you. God comes to enjoy sweet, sweet fellowship with you in these ordinary rhythms and routines. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a blessing? Fellowship. Life with God. God speaks to us and we reply in song. God declares unto us His Word and we believe it and are changed by it. He shares His life with us. He shares His own person with us. Isn't that amazing? And He does it in a way, in the end, that's even more surprising than Solomon could ever have guessed. that golden building that Solomon built was too low or small of a place for God to live in. 
What about in the cramped confines of the human heart? How about right down inside the lives, the thoughts, the feelings, the souls of children, little children, and men and women and old people whom he redeems? How about right down in the tiniest, most intimate corners of human lives with their human concerns day in and day out? Will God indeed dwell on the earth among men? He will. He'll come right down and dwell right inside of us. For you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God declares to us. You are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You are that building fitly framed together that grows into a holy temple in the Lord and is a habitation of God through the Spirit. You are that, beloved, as individual believers as you go about your daily work and your daily tasks. God goes with you. God goes in you. He makes you His abode. But you are that also as an assembly, as a church. He dwells in you. And with you. And when God comes to meet you in worship next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, He's coming to dwell in His temple, which are your lives, which are you, His people. He comes in His mercy and in His love. And in all the greatness of who he is, is the great God of heaven. Do you know that? Do you not find that marvelous? Do you not find that the greatest gift and privilege that you could ever possibly have? It is. It absolutely is. The God who is too great for temples. The God of whom heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Nevertheless, has chosen to make you his abode. Believe it, beloved. Be comforted and amazed. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, what an amazing and awesome privilege is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ that thou hast made us thine own abode, thine own dwelling place. That thou dost live with us and thou dost draw our lives into thine own sweet life. To have fellowship with thee. To enjoy thee. We pray, O Father, let us be amazed by this. Let our children be amazed by it. Let us not fall to those dangers of becoming humdrum. And neglecting, perhaps the great privilege that is ours to be in thy house and to meet with thee. We pray, O Father, rather amaze us and show us thy glory and thy goodness. And forgive all of our sins, O Father, when we pray and we direct our prayer unto thy holy temple. Hear our prayer and forgive and receive us in mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.